There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Thanks for joining. For this episode, we have Part 2 of my conversation with Dr. Anna Reed, scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council. We continue our discussion of her work focused on the large and highly persistent class of chemicals known as PFAS. We talk about their widespread use in many products and their potential impacts on vulnerable populations and environmental justice. Dr. Reed also describes her work developing a groundbreaking database of scientific studies on the health effects of PFAS and reflects on her role as a scientist advocating for public health protections from toxic chemicals. Here's part two of my interview with Dr. Anna Reed, recorded in June of last year. We're facing a pretty much a daily barrage from many sources. So, say a little bit about how these are used. There's a I don't think we know all the applications yet, but what are some of the more commonly recognized uses? We, we started out talking a little bit about essential uses and the idea of essential uses. And, you know, maybe there are some that are essential. So we need to work to find substitutes for those, but there are many that are unessential. So say something a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, a group of scientists recently actually tried to, they, catalog all the different uses of PFAS, and they found over 200 use categories, not just single uses, um, categories of use. And I think an estimate of at least 1,400 PFAS currently used in commerce. And it's everything from making nonstick pans to stain-resistant textiles, um, water-resistant textiles, to freeze-proofing food packaging, so those are more in the commercial end. Oh, cosmetics used a lot in cosmetics. All those waterproof mascaras and lipsticks and and foundations that don't come off your face for you know really long periods of time. That all that all of that is probably from PFAS. So those are like on the the consumer end, right? But then they're also used a lot industrially. So mm-hmm. uh, used for one of the surprises was that they're a lot of PFAS on AstroTurf. And it's because they use PFAS to help extrude the plastic into those little tiny slivers. Um, so it's like a, it's a machinery kind of use um, as, a, as a lubricant. Um, but then also there's like um, firefighting foam, right? Aqueous firefighting foam was a big one. It's still being used some, but there's a big movement to get out of using them because that's a huge source of contamination. It's like a lot of volume. Um, and a high concentration of PFAS and the PFAS are used to basically like spread that foam really well and uh, snuff out the the fire from getting any air. Um, so just lots and lots of different types of functions, um, unfortunately, um, and probably more that we don't know about because nobody's really required to report use. There's no use reporting of any. Well, we will we'll find out soon. I think a lot more information than we've had so far in that um, Congress has made 
The EPA put 172, 175, a good chunk of PFAS on the toxics release inventory. So we will know if people are releasing those chemicals, hopefully soon. Right. Once that reporting comes in. Right. And also a new rule just proposed under TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, that Congress also mandated because the previous administration was not doing anything to address this issue, requiring them to obtain more information from PFAS manufacturers as to where they're producing them and how much and how many workers are exposed. So those two things we just referred to are steps that Congress, on a in a bipartisan way, directed EPA to do to start issuing uh, de- dealing with this problem. So just to be clear, there these these are highly persistent, very toxic, toxic at very low levels, mobile in the environment, and bioaccumulative chemicals that are used in many applications more than we even know about. So they are getting into the environment and when we say in the environment, they're in drinking water, they're in groundwater, they're in the sludge that then goes on to fertilize our crops and it's in our food and many other ways of exposure to the consumer and commercial products that you were describing. So this is why it has, it's being, you know, labeled. And I think pretty much it's not even controversial that it's a crisis. It's an environmental and public health crisis that has bloomed in people's understanding over the last few years, really. Yeah. And I think there's an appreciation of the the persistence being the it's interesting. It's the persistence that's the most important aspect of it. I mean, obviously it matters whether they're toxic, but the persistence is like, if you think about anything that is that persistent and then the rate at which it takes for us to address these chemicals, it puts this urgency to um, the work we're doing. It's like the problem is already so massive and we don't have a way to clean up PFAS very well. We don't have a way to destroy PFAS. There's a, a real urgency, I think, in most stakeholders to just try and figure out how to stop adding to that problem because right. we don't have a solution for any of these chemicals at this point. And so I don't care if I don't have any toxicology information on a new PFAS. I'm concerned about it because if there ends up being toxicity associated with that chemical, it's already like far too late. We've already put it out in the environment. People are exposed to it. Um, and by the time it takes to, to study that chemical. And so there's a lot of movement from the scientific community to switch the dialogue on these chemicals to say that they're, they're toxic until proven safe, not vice versa, right? Which right now it's this kind of a, a mentality that a chemical is safe until proven toxic. The consequences of thinking that way and, and approaching these chemicals that way is just too severe. Yeah. We talked a little bit about some of the identified health effects with at least some of the PFAS that have been studied, but I wanted to touch on one particularly, which is the issue of how they affect people's immunity and their ability to, uh, for vaccines, their the effectiveness of vaccines, because that was something that was part of the profile of PFOS that people knew about and has been studied. And then suddenly there's a global pandemic where suddenly everybody cares a lot more about vaccines and their effectiveness. So I'm interested in that. And, and also very much related to that, the environmental justice aspect of this issue, because two things that have quite emerged in the, I think in the public consciousness and certainly the consciousness of policymakers in Washington, D.C. and around the country are both the PFOS crisis and the environmental justice crisis, and they need to address both. Right. So how do those two things connect, or do they connect? 
Yeah, they do. They do connect in kind of not in sometimes unexpected ways than some of the traditional environmental justice issues. But yeah, starting with immune system issues, I think one thing that people have seen firsthand and have really learned, it's kind of a little bit of a science lesson, that everybody responds to viruses and chemicals um, a little bit differently or drastically differently because we have, you know, our immune systems are different. Our, our biology is a bit different. And there's a, a range of the way we function and a range in the way we, we respond to, to, to issues. And we've seen that with the pandemic. Some people have very little um, response to getting COVID and others, you know, die from it. And it's a, and we've known that already in the population, people respond a little bit differently to vaccines as well, which makes sense, right? It's all a function of our immune system. But what we're seeing is that there are studies that show that higher levels of PFAS exposure are linked to lower levels of antibodies being produced when people are vaccinated. So what that means is that your immune system is not mounting as strong of a response to the vaccine. And if you don't mount a strong response to a vaccine, then you're actually not getting protection from that vaccine. Because the whole point of a vaccine is to basically say, this is what this bad thing looks like. Remember it. So the next time you see it, you can respond to it and, and attack it and get rid of it. But if you don't mount a good response, then you don't remember it. You don't, you don't respond to it well when you actually see the real thing. So that's been really concerning because Obviously, we need people's, well, not only do we need people's immunity, like, from the vaccine to work, but even just the ability to respond to viruses or bacteria or any type of, we need our immune systems to work. And so it's not just that it's specifically an issue with vaccines, but that, you know, immunosuppression is a big deal. Uh, we need our immune systems to work. It's hard to say how much just PFAS are an issue, but it's certainly a contributing issue to immune suppression and to immune system dysfunction. I think there's a lot of other things that probably are also contributing to immune system dysfunction. You take a look at some of the stats on increasing levels of autoimmune diseases um, and, and other issues that can't be all genetic. Spikes in, in certain types of diseases at young ages can't be explained away by just genetics. Um, we see that with autoimmune diseases. We see that with cancers at really young ages um, that normally don't happen, uh, you know, in their 30s and 40s, but we're seeing a lot more of that. Um, so I, it's just one of the many concerning things that we're seeing in our population. And the this environmental justice connection to PFOS. Yeah. So in kind of the way we traditionally think about environmental justice in terms of like where communities are located and where pollution is located, in some places, like in California, we've done an analysis where we do see a real overlap between communities that are already facing high levels of air pollution and other types of water pollution, pesticide exposure, and then also uh, are affected by other like socioeconomic factors, tend to also are also experiencing PFAS contamination in their water. So that is a, a big concern for us, and we'll be releasing that report pretty soon. And hoping that it kind of directs the California policymakers to start thinking about rural communities, about some of these EJ communities that are already way overburdened, do not need extra PFAS in their life. But then in other areas, 
And I think this is, contributes to one of the reasons why there's been so much cooperation um, on both sides from a policy perspective, why, why PFAS has become bipartisan, is that we're seeing high, like contamination in rural white communities or even just not, not even necessarily rural communities. And so, but in areas that we wouldn't, we don't see lead contamination, for example, in water. So like a good example is Michigan, where, you know, you have lots of drinking water problems, but it ends up being lead in Detroit and PFAS in rural or areas of Michigan. Right. And some of the work that uh, Cindy, so some of the people from NRDC are doing is helping to connect and make a coalition between those two groups, because in the end, it's all about safe water for everybody. And so that's been really encouraging to try and connect those two groups and, and to just in general, get everybody on board with clean, clean water um, and what needs to be done to, to provide people with clean water. Um, but, you know, then you can also think about it from other, other angles. One of the things I worry about the most is end of life issues. So like I, I said before, we don't actually have a safe way of destroying PFAS. Even if you tried to incinerate PFAS too strong, um, the bond is too strong. They don't actually break apart unless you're incinerating over a thousand degrees centigrade. And no normal municipal or even hazardous waste incinerator goes that high. So if PFAS waste is sent to an incinerator, it just spews PFAS back out onto the communities that are around it. And that is a huge environmental justice um, issue because most communities next to incinerators, well, all communities next to incinerators are being overburdened by environmental pollution, not just right. PFAS, but everything else that we're spewing on them. No community should live next to an incinerator. And then there's um, landfills where PFAS leach out of, and uh, most of the communities next to a landfill are, are environmental justice communities as well. So the end of life issue is, is a big problem and it's going to become more and more of a problem as we like, so as we make one advance in policy where we get rid of the use of PFAS in firefighting foam, then we have to ask ourselves, where is that waste going? And it's going to go into landfills and incinerators, unfortunately. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why we're trying to work on uh, some sort of storage requirement at the national level so that right. that waste is, is stored and not dumped into these communities until we have the technology to actually destroy the PFAS. Right. So, yeah. Um, and then the other thing I think about is, is populations too, like vulnerable populations. The most vulnerable biological populations to PFAS exposure are children, like fetuses, really in infants and, and children, women of childbearing age and nursing mothers, and then people that already have chronic illnesses, people that are already immunocompromised, people that are already exposed to a lot of other environmental pollutants. All of those people, can't, they're, they're more vulnerable to PFAS, and we don't necessarily, we don't address that vulnerability well in when, when we do risk assessments. I don't think we're, we're honestly protecting those populations um, well enough. I think there's been some good work to try and do a better job. So a good example is um, Minnesota's Department of Health. Their, their toxicologist actually developed a model to model people's exposure over time, their whole lifetime, mm. uh, to like a specific PFAS and use that to set exposure 
to estimate exposure levels for people. Normally we just say, oh, we just pick up an age and estimate the amount somebody drinks per body weight at that age and we're done. Like it's not very scientific, but they actually modeled out the entire life cycle, like like our whole lives, how our, how, how our PFAS build up in our bodies based off of how much we drink of PFAS. And what you see is this huge spike in exposure the first two years of life, like way higher than the rest of our lives. And so that in itself, like, it's like, we're not, if we're not protecting babies um, when they're born from PFAS and we're just setting it where, you know, we're protecting the adult population, we're, we're failing at our job. So, and I can't imagine being, and this has come up a lot recently because um, a study came out showing PFAS and, Everybody that they tested is breast milk. So it's a PFAS get transferred. They can move across the placenta into the fetus from the mom. And then they also um, get transferred into breast milk. And so so moms are feeding their PFAS to their babies, um, which is just horrific. But this, so this, this has been like a lot, you know, a lot of discussion about, you know, what moms are should do. It should be their own decision, but I can't imagine having to make that decision. I think most women don't, like if they're not having high levels of exposure to where they should even think about it. But then there's communities that have been drinking, like right next to a chemo's plant that produces dumps and dumps and dumps PFAS. And now, I mean, now they know about it. Now they're drinking filtered water. But before it was like decades of it um, built up in their bodies. They have super high levels. And then having to make that decision or not even having known and then and then wondering what they did. It's um, really un- unfair and really tough situation. And that specifically you were referring to Cape Fear River watershed and the Keymores mm-hmm. plant in North Carolina, although there's other DuPont and Keymores and 3M and other plants where similar things either we already know have happened or we're probably have happened and we'll find out more. Uh, right. And some, yeah, this more information comes out. So you've done a bunch of different kinds of advocacy and science research and policy work over the last three years. But one of the things which we referenced before is a, a database that you just um, have been working on for some time with a couple of colleagues and it's a database of, health studies done of PFAS. So can you say a little bit about that? Tell people about that. Yeah, it's called PFAS Talks database. And we set out on the the journey of making this database a couple of years ago, because even at that point, just two years ago, um, the messaging is very different now, but there was a question of how much we actually knew about other PFAS other than PFOA and PFOS, the original two that were produced. Even amongst other NGOs and, and in the media, it was like it was always phrased, "Oh well, you know, the rest of the PFAS aren't well studied. We don't know much about them. We're concerned, but we don't know much, right?" Both um, the other scientists that I, I worked on this with, I mean, it ended up being a much bigger group. But the two of us that started it, um, Dr. Katie Pelch, were like, "It seems off. It seems like there's a lot of data out there, but how do we how do we take a look at all of it?" and identify data gaps and data clusters and how do we like uh, see the whole picture better 
And she actually has a lot of experience with systematic reviews. And there was this new technology, like a new idea coming out at that point called a systematic evidence map. Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit different. What we do is we do a systematic review of all the literature. So we search all the literature for, you know, the PFAS that we were interested in, pull all of that, those studies out. And then we screened them at the title and abstract level for anything that had to uh, health effect. So any study that looked at a health effect around the PFAS chemicals that we were interested in. We chose 29 PFAS other than PFO and PFAS. To, to search for based off of like um, what had been looked at in biomonitoring for people. So like what, mm-hmm. what, what chemicals we actually knew were in people's bodies. And then a couple extra added because we work a lot with community members and we n- knew that they were being exposed to new PFAS. We didn't have any information on yet, um, but we knew that the, they were important because they were like coming out of, out of research in those areas that were actively producing PFAS. Um, so that's why we ended up adding. So the, ex- and the exposure has been established. These are, this isn't just mm-hmm. theoretical people, some people at least. Right. So we didn't have biomonitoring on it yet, but we knew people were being exposed to it. So yep. we added mm-hmm. those as well. Exactly. And so we <laughs> pulled out first round, everything up until May, March of 2019. And we found over 12,000 studies. <laughs> and that's when Katie and we're like, oh, we might have bit off more than we could chew. But we ended up developing partnerships with other scientists. And this was a real work of love. Some of it was like volunteer, like some scientists volunteered for a month of their lives while they were in transition from a, one job to the next. Mm. Some we um, hired on from, unfortunately, Katie was working um, for the the endocrine disruption exchange when this all started, but they had to close their doors. So NRDC, thankfully, we were able to pick up the tab and pay for their time to continue mm-hmm. to work on the project. But then we pulled in other people who worked at TEDx um, and had those qualifications to also help us, you know, sift through all this data. But so then we, you know, we screened all these studies for anything that had health effects uh, that looked at health effects and ended up with about uh, 750 studies that we then data extracted, which means that we recorded whether it was an animal, human or in vitro study, uh, what health effects they looked at, what would the exposure look like, all kinds of important details for studies. And we pulled all that information out and then made it all filterable. So we built this, database where you can go to it and when you when you get to the database you see all the PFAS uh, going down in rows and then all the health effects that we've found going across in columns and then the number of studies that fit all of that so what you're looking at is basically a heat map so um, mm-hmm. if you look at PFNA and cholesterol like um, lipid effects it'll tell you exactly how many studies there are on that. And you can actually click on it and then you are given, given a list of all those studies. Um, and so then you can actually, from a big picture point of view, see where there's big clusters of data. And then you can see where there isn't much data at all. Um, and so what we saw from doing that was there's very few studies on cancer, yet cancer is a huge concern amongst the community and, and honestly amongst the scientific community as well, but and there's not a lot of studies on it. And that, I think part of that is cancer is just very hard to study, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to fill that information gap. 
And then the other thing that, you know, you take away from looking at it is there's a lot of data, a lot of data on, on certain chemicals that we're not focusing on as much on that we should be focusing on. We can move on. I mean, in general, I think we're of the opinion that we should just be treating PFAS as a class and that's much more efficient, but there's no excuse for still concentrating on just PFO and PFAS, at least from a, even from a traditional point of view. I think it'll be a really interesting platform for a lot of other work to come off of. And that mm -hmm. was the goal. It wasn't just to be able to look at the big picture, but also you can sort for whatever question you want. I'm interested in wildlife studies that looked at these three PFAS chemicals. You can get that list. Um, that work has already been done for you. And then you can go ahead and look at those and, and kind of start drawing conclusions of what we do and don't know. Um, so that helps you do review of the data. Um, so, so we're hoping that more answers can come quicker for community members who have a lot of questions about different aspects of the data. But then um, we also did, like, we also put in filters, whether the health effects were looked at at a developmental stage. We did filters on whether there was conflict of interest from a financial point of view. So you can actually sort the entire database for whether there's conflict of interest or not um, in the study. And there's interest um, from labs, uh, from, from, from some scientists to actually take a do a conflict of interest analysis. That's interesting. It's probably one of the first, well, I don't know. I'm, I shouldn't say that. I'm wondering if this is one of the first systematic reviews in a sort of environmental policy area that does have a screen for bias, uh, for conflict of interest, and actually makes that part of the analysis or that you can use that as a screen. That's That's something that a lot of people in the policy world think needs to happen is long overdue as far as assessing studies, but it hasn't, and it's done in, I think other areas, but not so much in the environmental health field. It's done in other areas of systematic review, but not so much the environmental health area. And that, that comes from having scientists that are also dipped, have a, at least a toe dipped in policy, right? And know that that's important. Right. Building the, the tool from the ground up. So, you know, both Katie and I have done, a bit of policy. And so we know that there's concerns about conflict of interest. We've seen some of the studies and how they don't, they always draw the conclusion that there isn't any effect. So, well, not always, but often. So we knew that that was going to be something that could be really useful. It'll be really interesting to see the results of study like that. And the database has gotten a lot of attention already, right? Uh, maybe more than you even expected. Is that we had over 4,000 views to the site within the first week, which we were really shocked about. I think we're over our, I haven't checked recently, but we're close to 20,000 now. So yeah, a lot of interest, really positive feedback from other scientists who plan on using it, who also understand the amount of work that went into something like that. And then, you know, from regulators that are like, we can just explore this as we need to do our work. Uh, we can double check that we actually have all of the relevant studies that we are supposed to have to assess a question. So that's been, I think, something I've been really excited about is for to have the regulatory community. I mean, a lot of times, especially what we've been seeing with PFAS is that there's a lot of concern about it and there wasn't anything really being done at the federal level. And so there were states that were doing a risk assessment for the first time ever. And that's huh. like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really technical thing. And to be able to have extra resources to help 
these people do that. I think it was, uh, one, was one of our goals. It was to make our lives easier, also to make their lives easier. Yeah, right. I mean, for us, I use it all the time now. <laughs> Some reporter asked me about something. I'm like, let me look um, at what we know because um, it's really hard to keep 700. I don't. I have not read 750 studies on PFAS. You know, like it's uh, right. it's a lot of data, um, and I certainly wouldn't be able to keep all of it straight in my head. So it's always good to be able to go back and kind of take a look at what's going on. And then the other really important thing of the database is that it's set up to be able to be. A living database. So in other words, uh, we can do updates to it every once in a while. So I think it would be a not a waste, but um, a lot of work to just take one snapshot of the data, like of the data that's available on a problem um, versus if you set up the system to be able to do updates, you do it, or, you know, a literature, we've done a literature, literature search now from the last time we did it up to January, 2021 and pulled in another 400 studies. Um, so the data is like the science on PFAS, people are really concerned and the science is moving fast. And so our first update is already pulled in 400 studies. We're like halfway through that update. So we'll be able to, to update the database soon, but I think it's critical that it stays kind of a living, uh, database so that, you know, it stays up to date as much as possible. And it also is set up in a way to where you could add new chemicals as they become more relevant as well. Right. We'll be learning more about them. So combining your scientific training and your approach, I mean, you are a scientist with advocacy. Has that been awkward at times? Has it been easy? Is it difficult? How, how has that been over the three, three and a half years? I, I actually love it. I think it, it is, it fits the way my brain works. I, I still remember, I think it was a couple weeks into the internship Avi, who's a lawyer, came up to my desk and was like, hey, so I'm going to the cap, like I'm going to the capital, the state capital to have some meetings about, you know, I think it was about biomonitoring. And he goes, do you want to come and talk science? And I'm always a yes. I always say yes, you know, and I was like, yeah, um, can you give me a little bit more specifics on the science I'm going to talk about? <laughs> like, it was just, I still vividly remember that. And it was like, it's funny, but at the same time, it's kind of like represents the experience that you have when you work not in one specific science field. It's dictated by like what you want to do, like your goals, the policy goals, you know? And so you learn the science you need to learn. You talk about the science you need to talk about based off of what is needed by the team and what is needed by the policies that you want to get enacted. And I just, I kind of love it. I mean, sometimes it really makes you uncomfortable, right? I mean, scientists like to research something thoroughly, feel very comfortable with it and then say what they feel comfortable saying so that, you know, it's accurate. But at the same time, like it turns out you really only need to know a certain amount to be able to make a good decision and finding that, the comfort with being able to do that has been like a really fun challenge, I think. And not every scientist can do it. I I know that that's a big hang up for others. Like they just, um, but I, I actually really like to be able to, I like the challenge. I was just going to say, it's a, it's a good counter to the um, industry approach, which is always, you know, we should take forever. We should, we should delay everything forever. We have to know every last little detail before we can re regulate. And the scientists on the, on the 
advocacy side, well, I mean, I guess there's, they're advocating for their clients or their companies or whatever, but on the public health side of that ledger are more comfortable saying we know enough. We have this amount of information, if assuming it is enough information and we can, we can move forward. Right. I think it's about um, like, what's, what's the question you're trying to answer? You're not like, if you, if you're pull you pull yourself back and you say, okay, I'm not trying to answer every question. I don't need to understand the whole, like every single detail of this problem. What I need to understand is like, what, what, it, what do I know enough of to be able to, to, to make a smart decision going forward on like the big picture question. And if the big picture question is protecting public health, it actually becomes like, I think that's one of the things I love the most about the work I do is I look at him like, what is the, what is the best decision from a public health point of view? I, I can ignore everything else and think about that. And then that makes my, my job kind of really straightforward because it's, and PFAS is a good example. There's just so much data saying that this is a big problem. I don't need to know every single effect that a certain PFAS has on our, our bodies. I just need to know that um, it has some effects or, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, I don't need to know a hundred percent of the problem to know that it's a problem. Right. What's been the hardest thing to learn or to get used to? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think in the beginning I struggled most with media. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually quite introverted person and, um, hate public speaking. And then, uh, you know, one of, part of our jobs is to, to talk to reporters and, and to do some public speaking. And, you know, I've gotten more used to it, but I definitely struggled with that quite a bit in the beginning. Another big lesson I've had is work-life balance and you know, there's always going to be more work from working at an NGO. There's just like, I could get buried in it, but that's not sustainable. So learning how to do this job in a sustainable way that like, I won't get burnout and I, I can continue to do for a long time has been, you know, learning to say no <laughs> has mm -hmm. been hard, but it, it's, it's been fulfilling too, because then, you know, I can find because the goal is to be able to do it for a long period of time, not to, flame out. <laughs> Do you see yourself getting into other, you know, working on other toxics issues, pesticides or other classes of chemicals, or do you feel like you're in this PFOS thing now? And it's, it is a, it's, it's, it's its own universe, both science policy, everything. Do you feel like you want to stay on this for a while? I mean, it's definitely its own universe. There's so much work to do and I am doing something different every day. And so that, like, I feel like I've learned a lot just staying within the PFAS realm. And, and I think I'm starting to contribute a lot as well mm -hmm. with the amount of, like, expertise that I've built up in it. But I do think, yes, I think I'm at the point where I'm considering how to, you know, round out my work and my experience more. I've always mm -hmm. been somebody that uh, it's good not for, for me not to plateau or stagnate in any way, <laughs> but I'm kind of figuring that out slowly in terms of where I want to go, what I want to add. Yeah. Have you made any mistakes yet? Any regrets in the, in the work? <laughs> any things you would do differently? Yeah, of course. I mean, she's, everybody makes mistakes. Um, I think I'm pretty critical of myself in terms of like, anytime I do a presentation or do a public speaking thing, I always feel like I could do better and 
and then constantly kind of always checking yourself in different situations, like, you know, negotiations with industry, kind of reassessing how that went. Did I really like, sometimes you get a little too pulled in and that's not the best way to approach it, you know, kind of reassessing all that. I I don't know. I mean, big mistakes. I can't think of any at the moment. I think it's all just been uh, a big learning experience and um, I've gotten better. How about successes? Successes? Yeah, successes. And what are you most proud of so far? I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I've had a really lucky, like a fortunate experience so far. I think a lot of, you know, I prepared myself to you know, not have bills pass and not have things work first time or second time, because I think that's generally the the experience. But with PFAS, you know, because it's been bipartisan and because it's so scary, there's a lot of a lot of the work we've done has, you know, the bills have passed, the the policies have moved forward. You know, we've passed every bill that I've worked on on PFAS. This is in California. California, New York, um, yeah, um, other places that we've worked. So that's been. It's been really rewarding. It's be able to have been part of a process where, you know, we we've we've phased out the use of a huge source of PFAS in California. That's like a that's a big deal. I think um, mm-hmm. definitely should be considered a success. I'm pretty proud of the database. That took a lot of work, and it took and most of the, a lot of the time that I worked on the database was off the clock, kind of you know, like because I just didn't have wasn't part of my like workload. Um, we just made it happen. And then labor of love. Yes. It was a big labor of love. And then, (laughs) and then being part of the, you know, the group that worked on that scientific basis for managing PFAS as a class paper. Um, I use it all the time. People use it all the time. I think it was a really important paper and important project. It's having a few huge impact on the national and international debate and and policy discussions around PFAS. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this is going to be, you'll enjoy this, but I, I, I really enjoyed, um, being on a panel with Mark Ruffalo and Bernie Sanders. And <laughs> well, I was trying to decide whether or not to bring that up because you were uh, saying, oh, public speaking, but that's actually led to, uh, one of, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Um, I think it was this is, it was an int- it was a, a rather magical experience, to be honest. You know, I, uh, it was in the middle of the impeachment hearings. And so all of a sudden, I thought I was going to do five minutes of speaking uh, and just be the scientist on the panel. And, you know, the the people that were going to spend the majority of the time speaking was going to be, you know, Senator Sanders and Mark Ruffalo. And he he couldn't come <laughs> for most of it. He was there for like three minutes of it. And then Mark Ruffalo just is, uh, you know very charismatic he's very good at those situations and just kind of took over and started asking me questions and we had a great conversation and i felt very like comfortable having that conversation with him um i'm sure that's part of the draw of you know some of these these actors i don't know i don't have a lot of experience with it but it was it was an interesting experience because i think a lot of the times you know when i present i'm on my own um but with him it it felt like I was just having a conversation and it was great. Is there anything you've, are there things you would like to have 
like to do in the advocacy, but you haven't done yet? I mean, have you identified things that you want to do that are? Yeah, I'm. I, well, I mean, specifically in the stuff that we're working on, we're hitting a wall when it comes to getting any type of PFAS as like a class-based regulation in kind of the once PFAS get into our environment arena. So we've been able to do a, get a lot of people on board with phasing out the whole class and certain product categories, or to even think about, you know, class-based regulation in any way from a before we use the chemicals side of thinking. But when it comes to regulating PFAS in drinking water or like, you know, like the actual protections that we need to stop people from being exposed to the chemicals that they're already being exposed to in their environment, we've just like hit a hit a wall. Um, People, it's just... (laughs) seems to be too far outside of the box for them and so we need to i feel like we need to regroup and figure out how to to tackle that better um because i just i i don't want to be writing comments on individual pfas regulations until i'm 80 and even then not getting anywhere near where we need to be right but it sounds like i think you were saying this earlier this is this feels like something you want to do, whether it's PFOS or other things that this environmental public health policy advocacy right. science work is, is kind of how, where you, how you see your career, at least for some period of time going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think I want to, I want to learn more and work more in like in the environmental justice space and, and with women. Um, mm-hmm. uh, those are, like on on like women specific issues. I think that um, I see the power that can come out of organizing that group, but also like the fact that so many, so many of the exposures that women face are unique to women and um, really unnecessary. And then same with a lot of the environmental justice issues. It just seems like if we don't tackle the fact that there's just so much pollution in some of these communities. Um, we're just not not doing our jobs. We're not protecting people, even if we work kind of at the big picture level. You know, say I work on PFAS, you know, for years. I, I still don't think if, if I just worked at it from kind of a federal or state level, I, I, I think there would be populations that would, nothing would change for them. Mm-hmm. Unless we work specifically on those issues, work specifically with those communities. Um. You know, like a good example is in California where they're doing a bunch of PFAS testing now. But, you know, you know, from our analysis, we realize that they're completely skipping anybody that's on a domestic well and most people that are on small water systems. And the, the people that are on small water systems or domestic wells, especially in the Central Valley, are the ones that need the attention the most. They already have arsenic and nitrates and all kinds of other crap in their water. And we're not even testing their water. So I think that you know, if you look at it from one angle, you think, oh, they're doing lots of testing, but you look at it from another angle and you, you, you realize that they're, they're missing entire populations that are really vulnerable. So I'd like to move in that direction more. So it, it's a really nice arc you described of realizing uh, that, you know, for when you were coming back from Chile and wanting to go back to grad school, that you wanted to use your scientific skill. I mean, you're, that's, that's what you're one, not the only thing you're good at something you're very good at and have been driven by and motivated by to help other people and 
make a difference. And that's, I don't, you didn't really know then how that was going to happen or see the path. And yet now here you are doing exactly, I think a version of what you were thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just a realization before that I wanted more. I just didn't know exactly how I was going to get there. I was just lucky that the first internship that I set up set me down this path. I was ready to try a bunch of different things till I found something that I liked. So yeah, yeah. that's great. Well, you've been super generous with your time. I really, really appreciate your coming on the show. I think you have a great story and I personally really love the work you're doing and admire it. And it's extremely important and beneficial to people, whether they know about it or not, but hopefully at least a few more people will know about it and maybe follow a similar path toward their own experience and careers of advocacy and protecting public health. Yeah. I think that's, you know, the other thing that I try and do on the side is, you know, talk about what I do and my experiences with grad students um, who are in a very familiar situation that, that I was in like really not knowing what they want to do. There's been a lot of interest, which is really encouraging a lot of interest from grad students that I've talked to now about, you know, what they can do kind of out in the, the non-academic world. A lot of, a lot of our generation is realizing that staying in some sort of ivory tower doesn't work. I think we've all watched issues with anti-vaxxers and all kinds of other things that, that the problem with being isolated and not integrating science into like our everyday you know, life and decision-making. Um, so that's been really encouraging for me to see that more and more people want to, like, it shouldn't be a separate thing. It should be, shouldn't be inaccessible, but that science can, you know, really have positive impact on, on the world around us. So I'm hopeful, um, that more people find a path like mine or some, something similar that, they feel fulfilled in and also contribute to some of these like big decisions that we have to make as a society. I mean, I think we see that a lot in climate change, but just kind of a lot of other issues that we face. Right. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. And Anna, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thank you.